From Entrepreneur Media, this is Problem Solvers, a show in which entrepreneurs do what entrepreneurs do best, solve unexpected problems in their business. We were completely wrong. And I'm just like, it's not selling. It was like, we have to start from scratch. I'm Jason Pfeiffer, the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. Kelly Earhart was environmentally conscious as a kid, but then she made a choice as a young adult. She didn't want to let her climate anxiety become apathy. She's 26, and she says that she wanted to fully focus on solutions. Originally, she started a waterless toilet company, but COVID kind of killed that. And then one day, she was reading a very dense climate report, as she does. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that there are enough readers of dense climate reports out there. But anyway, it noted a particularly interesting solution called enhanced weathering. In short, enhanced weathering encourages a natural process by which carbon dioxide is removed from the atmosphere when water hits certain rocks. Who knew? Seemingly, every major report listed enhanced weathering as a crucial tool for reaching climate targets, but nobody appeared to be doing it outside of scientists in labs. And Kelly thought to herself, well, maybe there's something that I can do about that. Flash forward a little bit, and now she is running Vesta, which she co-founded in 2019 as a nonprofit, and it's now a public benefit corporation that has raised $6 million in philanthropy to do exactly this, to take this idea that has been living in academia and do what academia has yet to be able to do, to run real-world experiments, to see if there is a way to build a business model around this idea that had just been buried in some report. Anyway, I first learned about Kelly when we were doing research for an issue a few months ago in Entrepreneur Magazine that we called Founders of the Future. We were rounding up some incredibly impressive founders in their 20s who are working on companies or projects that are very focused on, well, redefining what we know today for tomorrow. And Kelly's story just really stuck with me because I, I just, <laughs> you know, we didn't have that much space to write about her because each one of these items was kind of short. But I, I was just so curious, how does someone who is not of academia, I mean, Kelly is not, she's not inside of the academic world. How does she come to build a very well-funded, very ambitious company that is drawing academics out of academia, these incredibly smart scientists away from their cushy university jobs and into a kind of startup land with her to do this thing that just most people hadn't thought of, but that she's building a structure around. It just, it just seemed like such an incredibly abstract and complicated project and yet possibly so important if she is indeed correct that this can have a meaningful impact on climate that I just wanted to know how she had done it and how anybody could see something out in the world. And even though they are not an insider in it, say, you know what? I can build that. So I got Kelly on the phone. I'm Kelly Earhart, co-founder and president of Vesta. And here's how she explains what Vesta is. Vesta is a company that's advancing coastal carbon capture, which is a ocean-based climate solution that accelerates the Earth's natural process of carbon removal called rock weathering to remove gigatons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere on human-relevant scales. 
Vesta is obviously based around a lot of science that, frankly, I don't understand all that well. Maybe you didn't exactly understand what she was talking about either, but do not fear because we get into more of the specifics later. But that's not really the point. The point is about building, about building organizations from the outside in, about identifying something, some opportunity. And even though you are not an insider, figuring out how to seize that opportunity, how to make an impact no matter what. That's really the story here. And Kelly and I are going to tell it, well, a, a little bit backwards because we start with the organization and understanding the organization. And then as you'll hear, I, I, I just keep pushing her to go a level deeper. The organization was built off of a network. Well, how did the network begin? Well, how did you connect with those people in the first place? Or how did you even know how to understand what those people would need so that they would answer your emails? This is ultimately what it takes, right? Big things are built off of small things. And something as big as a company that is designed to address climate change doesn't get much bigger than that is really also the product of a million tiny decisions and tiny connections that ultimately build towards one big, hopefully very impactful whole. So that is what we are talking about on Problem Solvers today. It is going from outsider status to creating something with real impact. Coming up after the break. Who doesn't want to do right by the planet? Well, one of the easiest ways is to use paper. And another is to choose products that come in paper-based packaging. Because paper comes from trees, a natural and renewable resource. And here in the U.S., private forest owners carefully maintain healthy forests and their habitats to provide our essential paper products. And those products can be recycled up to seven times. Thanks to innovative design solutions, everyday items from cosmetics to liquid detergents are now using paper-based packaging, making it easier than ever for consumers to do good for the planet. And the same goes for business owners. Choosing paper-based packaging materials is a great way to take the sustainable path forward that also gives back. So choose paper and help America's forests thrive. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com. All right, we're back talking with Kelly Earhart of Vesta. And to start, let's dig into the science here. It's actually totally fascinating. I know it might have sounded a little intense or abstract a moment ago, but Kelly does a great job of laying it out. And the process is fascinating. This is a thing that's happening all around us all the time that who knew? So what we need to understand is rock weathering and then enhanced weathering. And here's the primer on that. So rock weathering is the, is the Earth's natural process for removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. It's a process that happens every time that rocks come into contact with water. Any rock on Earth is weathering. So think of even a, a sidewalk, right? Every time that comes into contact with rain, that sidewalk is weathering. However, certain minerals, when they weather, remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And Wait, 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 wait. Define weathering. So weathering is the breaking down of rocks and minerals. And when certain minerals weather, they remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere through this natural chemical process that occurs that essentially pulls carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and into water. And slowly that carbon, it transforms out from carbon dioxide to bicarbonate and moves through waterways, eventually into the ocean, turning into calcium carbonate. And then it turns into something that marine organisms can use to build their skeletons and shells. And then when they die, 
that calcium carbonate turns back into limestone. So it's this process that turns carbon dioxide into rocks over millions of years. And it's something that's been happening on planet Earth since time immemorial, right? Now, enhanced weathering is taking minerals that are particularly effective at not just weathering, but removing carbon from the atmosphere when they weather, right? So the ones that cause that natural chemical reaction to occur. At Vesta, we're using olivine, which is the most efficient mineral at performing this carbon removal process. It's also one of the most abundant minerals on Earth. So it makes up over 50% of the upper mantle. It's found on every continent. And when we grind it into a sand and add it into coastal areas, as it dissolves, it does this amazing thing. It generates alkalinity in the ocean, which actually allows the ocean to sequester and store more carbon dioxide safely and permanently. All right, but we're going to back up now to when Kelly first learns about this, which is just in a scientific paper that she's reading. And she gets really curious about it. She says, oh, this sounds really interesting, but why aren't we doing this? Why aren't there experiments about this that I've been reading about? And so she starts to look into it and thus begins the journey. The problem was that it had been stuck in academia. So there was about 30 years of lab-based research on this topic where people were testing at benchtop scales, they were running modeling simulations, and there was a lot of positive indication that this would be a great solution to climate change. But no one had ever brought it out of the lab and into the field to actually get an understanding of what this would look like in the real world and, and how it would need to, to work. And so I started talking to some folks about this, was able to get some experts on the phone, well, first on email, of course, and then on the phone. A lot of the sort of leading experts and academics were based in Europe. And so after a fair amount of sort of back and forth, what I got as feedback was that, yes, this is a great looking solution, but the process to do a field trial would probably take a decade or two decades before we could actually get one in the field. And this was about three and a half years ago. And the reason for that is because there are, there's a need for academic disciplines to come together to answer this question in a way that you just don't see in academia. You don't see the geology department talking to the geochemistry department, talking to the biology department and the biogeochemistry department and the coastal engineering department. Like these, these departments don't talk to each other. They stay in their silos and they do their work. And every once in a while there's collaboration, but not on the scale to do an interdisciplinary effort like is needed for this type of work. And so we were not very satisfied with that idea that it would take a decade or more to get a field trial when everyone was saying that was the next step. And so we pushed hard. We actually started Vesta as a nonprofit at first and brought in some leading scientists in the space to develop a scientific roadmap and begin hacking on this problem and, and working on it in a way that we could rigorously advance the science, but also make progress in a meaningful time, time frame. And so after three and a half years, we've now launched the first field pilots and are integrating the first ever data on, on this technique, on this solution. And we're planning larger field pilots for, for next year, for 2023. It's, it's still a nonprofit. So we actually have a hybrid structure. We started as a nonprofit. We now have a public benefit corporation, which is sort of where we, we all work out of. So we also have a relationship with a 501c3 fund that funds our foundational research. So we publish the results of these first field trials into the public benefit to advance the field. But our public benefit corporation is developing all of the sort of commercial structure and strategy 
IP for measurement, supply chain partnerships, commercial partnerships, such that we can actually get this to billion ton, like mega climate impact scale once we have these key research questions sort of answered and peer reviewed. I see. So let's talk a little bit more about that because one of the things that's always fascinated me about occasional floated solutions to climate change is that is that there's just no commercial incentive to pursue them, right? I mean, the first time I heard about carbon capture, I thought, well, that's really interesting. People are creating technology that just literally absorbs the carbon. But of course, and that's a hamster wheel. So the solution, of course, is if you can create something that is self-sustaining because it is a business, then you're able to use that business for a greater good. How are you thinking through what the business of this even is? I understand that the research would have to be nonprofit because it's it's still speculative. And so what you needed to do was run around and raise enough money from people who believed in it. Nobody can figure out a way to make any money off of that. And if you can't make any money off of that, then nobody's going to do it unless it is a nonprofit. But then you're just running around trying to raise money nonstop, and which is which I suppose is what you did. But now you've got research rolling, which is amazing. And you're trying to figure out what a business looks like. What are the first steps for that? So our main business model is the sale of of carbon credits of of carbon removal, and so of right carbon now, what of carbon removal? The sale we're selling, of we're sale of carbon credits. So we sell the carbon sale removal of carbon credits carbon. to companies that want to offset their emission and make climate impact. We also, in the future, will license the technology to measure, report, and verify on carbon removal rates in the ocean. So something that I think is really cool about this is that no one's ever measured changes in seawater chemistry that allow us to understand how quickly and when the ocean absorbs carbon dioxide. And so we're building tools and instruments to be able to do that, models to to be able to do that. So we'll be licensing that technology as well as technology to deploy this technique to others who also want to sell carbon credits. And now I think I think you're does absolutely that, right. Wait, wait, sorry, before you move on, does that concern you to have a business model that's resting upon climate credits? And the, the reason I ask that is because, of course, that's, it's a sort of alternative currency uh, developed out of incentives. But if those incentives change, or the incentive system changes, then the currency possibly disappears. Yeah. And I think, I think you made a good point in that previously, there was no business model behind climate change. There was no business model behind any environmental solution, really, because we have never lived in a world where we've been able to tie economic benefit to environmental benefit. However, I think that is changing as the carbon markets are developing. And so there's there's two markets. There's the compliance market, which is regulated by governments, and then there's the voluntary market. And I think both of these markets are really skyrocketing as the world wakes up to the climate crisis. I mean, the value of, of traded global markets for carbon offsets grew to almost a trillion dollars last, almost $900 billion last year. The voluntary carbon market has seen consecutive years of 60% growth year over year. And in the voluntary market, the demand for durable carbon removal. So you can do carbon removal in a way that sort of re-emits the carbon in a couple of years time, or you can do durable carbon removal like we do, where the carbon is fixed for thousands of years and we don't have to worry about it anymore. The demand for durable carbon removal grew 750% last year. So there's a lot of demand. And I think that calling it an alternative currency, you could, or you can see it as one of the largest currently developing future industries that that truly, I, I don't know that we can accomplish any of our environmental goals without. We, mm. we have to have the, 
the carrot and stick dynamics going on in the markets. And while carbon credits and carbon markets are imperfect, they are a really great first step at being able to do that to, to tie environmental and economic benefit together. How did you go about, if, if rewind a little bit, because uh, as I was asking that earlier question about the business model, I realized I, I sort of skipped over the challenge of raising money to explore this system that is just tracked in academia. I mean, this is pretty interesting, right? I mean, here you are, you are not of academia, but you have immersed yourself in academia. And you are now finding donors who are willing to invest in something led by you and your team that otherwise was trapped inside of academia. How do you make that pitch and who are you making that pitch? To? So our donors, yeah, they're foundations that generally support environmental programs, climate, climate change research, and also individuals that have made it their sort of life's mission to donate their wealth towards advancing climate change research. I think what's compelling to our donors is actually that we do have this hybrid structure and that mm -hmm. their money's not going into a money pit that is never going to see real impact. But instead, the, the work that we're doing with that, the, that philanthropic capital is furthering the science that will ultimately feed into a sustainable and investable business that can get to planetary scale impact. Whereas a lot of philanthropic efforts are, are sort of you know, one and done. This is going to have ripple effects for a long time. Sorry, can you tell me what it was like for you? I'm prompting you here with an eye towards someone who's listening, who imagines themselves wanting to pursue something like this. They have identified something in the world that they would like to bring into the world. It's going to require going out and basically convincing people to part with their money so that it can be put towards this. And, you know, they don't have 50 years of experience in this space. You're young. You immerse yourself very thoroughly into this really interesting and overlooked world. How are you making that case? And what was it like for you to, start, personally speaking, what was it like for you to start making that case? I mean, the way we can make that case is we have an incredible team. We have 13 PhD scientists on staff full time, and some of them are the leading experts, leading world experts in this space that we've gotten to join our team because we have this really interesting interdisciplinary approach. And because some of my co-founders and I have been actually in California and sort of working in the social impact world for a while, we have incredible networks of, of support, whether that's partnerships or donors or investors. And so I think that seeing both the, the ability of the team from a technical perspective to be able to execute on what we're doing is one element of it. And also that the the team is is really committed to growth and to bringing on sort of the best collaborators that we can. So it's it's not just us, it's also our academic collaborators that we work with, our institutional collaborators. We we work with various government entities as well, and I think that makes it a lot more compelling. It's it, it's not just your slapshot team of a couple hopeful right. climate activists. <laughs> sure. No, I and I that's a really wonderful point. So that makes me want to want to rewind then even further. I you know, it's funny because you you, you describe this early moment where you're, you're learning about this, then you're sending out emails and you're trying to learn about it from individual academics and you're kind of building an original base of knowledge about what's going on here. And then we flash forward to this very 
sophisticated organization that's bringing something into the world. And I'm trying to figure out what's in the middle. And it's it's funny because, so how do you go and pitch? Well, the answer is that you have a great team. Okay, so then let's rewind there. How did you get the great team? Right, there had to be something yeah. from the, hello, my name is Kelly. I'm sending yeah. you an email out of nowhere to, I have all of these amazing PhDs who have formed into a team and were able to make this very sophisticated sell. So what what does that look like? I guess the answer is take me from, emails, learning, understanding to assembling the team? Yeah, it was a hard journey. It really was. I mean, convincing academics to get out of academia and out of their cushy tenured positions and come join a startup to work on hacking on a huge problem is a, is a hard sell. And so it was quite a journey to get there. And, and I think we made, we made a lot of mistakes at the beginning in the first year where we tried to move quickly into identifying a pilot site and seeing where we could go first. And once we found one expert to sort of join us as an advisor, the, the ripple effects then sort of tacked on, right? Mm. So then more people were willing to talk to us. But what do, you think it started, was, what do you think it was that made that first sell? How did you get that first person? To be honest, we, when we launched, we, it's, it's kind of funny and weird, but it's like network effects. We were featured on Hacker News and in their newsletter. And so we launched on Earth Day of 2019. And then a few days later, we were at the top of Hacker News and at the top of Reddit. And a bunch of people found out about what we were trying to do. And a mm. lot of people heard about coastal enhanced weathering for the first time. And I think they thought, well, this actually seems really hopeful. It's elegant and intuitive. And most of the time I'm really depressed about climate change. This could actually work. And I think that the, the academics that we were able to bring on were excited about the idea of actually working on the problem rather than studying it. And while it's not easy to, it's not easy to sort of raise money initially for that, again, there's this, this ripple effect where once you get a couple of donors in and you have enough, you can spend more time and more resources on bringing in the kind of money that's necessary for that. And then the folks that, that we brought in were so happy because in the academic sphere, usually if you raise money through a grant, you're going to have 60, 70, 80, even 90% of that grant going towards the university overhead. And so in a startup, you have a lot more to work with and, and actually do science with. Hmm, that's really interesting. It's, it's, I mean, what I'm hearing is that you had to develop not just an understanding of the kind of team that you needed, but rather an understanding of the incentives and motivations of the people who you needed on that team. I mean, right, like what you're describing is a kind of granular understanding of incentives, personal incentives, that somebody has a great, cushy academic job, which is, which is the dream for many people in that space, but that there's going to be a subset of those people who are motivated by different things that academia is just simply not going to be able to provide them or provides at such a slow pace that it's not satisfying. And that the impact that they could make and the way in which money is used is just going to be appealingly different for in working with someone like you than it would be in staying where they are and trying to form the academic interdisciplinary super team that'll take 10 years to do anything. <laughs> and, and, and I guess just to continue to backtrack our way into granularity here. How did you learn that? Was that? Did that come out of lots of conversations with academics and asking them what it would take to move them or what their frustrations are or their problems are? I mean, I, it's, it's just, it's really interesting. What I'm finding and in talking to you is that you have layers and layers 
upon layers knowledge about how something works in order to get the next layer of it to work. And so I, I'm just very curious how you've been building that. So take me down to like how you understood how to understand the incentives of these people who you ultimately were able to draw away from their cushy academic jobs. Yeah, it was definitely through conversation and asking them what was important to them. I think a lot of, of folks, especially that have kids for and are working in the climate space, it's a lot of depressing information all of the time. And contributing to the research behind that is really, really important. And I think that there are some people who are more motivated, again, to work on trying to solve the problem instead of trying to, to, to only better sort of, sort of add more data to what the problem is. And so, yeah, through a lot of conversations, I think we were able to, to figure that out and find folks for whom that was more important. I'll say that some some people even came to us. So my favorite example of that and the definitely like our incredible rock star head of science, Dr. Grace Andrews, she was at the Leverhulme Center for Climate Change Mitigation and launched some of the first pilots of terrestrial enhanced weathering. So doing what we're doing, but on agricultural land instead of in the ocean or on, on land broadly instead of in the ocean. And when she found out about Vesta, she actually got in touch with us and said, hey, I think what you're doing has a lot of potential for impact and I'd, I'd like to join. And the reason she did that is because she had been doing the studies and she saw that that process was less efficient than the process we were proposing. And so she left her academic job there and joined us. And I think that part of that was having the infrastructure in place where we were in the eyes of, of scientists and they were hearing about us. Though I will say that there, that we have had a lot of, we've had to do a lot of work to make sure that the scientific community understands the rigor of our research program and doesn't just think that we're Silicon Valley cowboys that are trying to get a solution out there as quickly as possible, but really understands that this is rooted in science and, 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 our, and our research program is, is quite rigorous. So it's been a, it's been a balance of, of those two things, of having deep conversations, understanding incentives and bringing people on board in relation to those, and also having the infrastructure to be able to receive people for whom impact is really important and they're already clear on how they want to support. Kelly, final question. I'd said earlier I had, as we were talking in mind, this person who's listening, who's at the very beginning of the journey that you are many, many steps ahead on. And my question is, what is your advice to them for moving forward? Somebody has identified something. They want to bring something into the world. It is very far beyond their reach or possibly even base of knowledge. What they have is some resources that are disposable, whatever that is, a network, a smart network, a, a mission, a whatever. What is your suggestion for where do they begin? Or is it just <laughs> send out a bunch of emails and then start learning every little step of what it takes to get from the emails to where they want to go? I would say dig in, dig in as deep as you can, learn as much as you can, get yourself to a really informed place, and then reach out to the people that you don't think you should have the privilege to be on the phone with and try and get them on the phone. And really imagine if you could have the best person in the world to talk to about this, who would it be and how do I get to them? And do everything you can to try and talk to them, even if for nothing else, just for some advice on who you should talk to next. And do do that deep dive. And once once you're there and you feel like you've got a sense of who could support this mission that you're on, I would say never stop thinking about creative ways to bring it into fruition. For us, having an innovative and flexible and sort of catalytic financing structure is really, really important. And it's what's allowed us to ensure that we don't have to sacrifice rigor 
in our research program. And for every company and every problem, there are different sets of, I think, ways that you can innovate on structures that would otherwise just be um, normal and and sort of, you know, we could go the cookie cutter route and just only raise venture capital, but that would put us in a position to not be able to do some of the research we'd like. So I think do the, the hard work of thinking about how to align your own incentive structures as well. And if it's a hard problem, it probably is going to take some creative frameworks and structuring. No hard problem is done easy. Kelly, this is really great. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Jason. And that's our episode. I would love to hear what you think and maybe even about a problem that you solved. You can find me at my website, jasonpfeiffer.com. J-A-S-O-N-F-E-I-F-E-R.com. Also, I have some more useful stuff for you. I write a newsletter about how to future-proof yourself and become more adaptable and optimistic. I would love for you to sign up. It is at jasonpfeiffer.bulletin.com. Also, check out my other podcast. It's called Build for Tomorrow. In each episode, I take on some belief that we have that holds us back from progress and show you why it is not as bad as you think. Problem Solvers is a production of Entrepreneur Media and comes out every Monday morning, so make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. Thanks to Deepa Shah for production. My name is Jason Pfeiffer. See you next week.